Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 Thank you very much for coming, and um, I'm really appreciative of um, uh, Phil King and Dave Newton for turning up and uh, supporting me here um, in, uh, you know, my ventures to uh, tell the indie story of uh, the mid '80s <laughs> in all its muddled way. I was going to do a little reading, uh, and then after that, we'll have a little discussion, or a big discussion, or a medium discussion, um, uh, but. First of all, just a little word about the book. Um, the motivation for writing the book really was that this was a period, this period between very roughly 1983 and 1986 is a period that's largely been glossed over. Um, the sort of onrush of, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of Britpop phenomenon and, 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 and prior to that, the, 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 the number of bands that, that entered the charts out of the sort of indie milieu, um, uh, left little time for, for, for what became known as the sort of C86 bands. Um, and it always seemed to me that, 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 that they'd been disregarded, or, or rather that the period had been disregarded. Um, and yet at the same time, um, the, the, the interest in the period uh, you know, remains phenomenal. Um, Everything started really, you know, at a time when there was sort of so much social division. Um, you know, you had a sort of hard, hardline Thatcher, Thatcher government. We had American air bases. We had the miners' strike. Um, blah blah blah. I mean, it, you know, it, a really terrible time. Perhaps only surpassed by how terrible it is now. But um, but, um, but 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 there you have it. Um, and. Um, there was a glut of bands and a rush of bands um, that came together. It was very DIY. It was very punk influenced. It was influenced by the 60s. Um, but I think they put their own spin on it. And I'd like to read a little bit now from a chapter called Room at the Top. Uh, Room at the Top refers, of course, to a club that existed at the Enterprise in North London. Um, so I'm, I'm um, which, which was set up by uh, Dan Tracy and Emily. Um, so I'm just going to read a bit, bit here now from that. In the second issue of the Television Personalities Fan Club magazine, published in February 1985, an announcement was made. The television personal TV personalities have helped set up a new live venue to cater for the many new and exciting bands around. Since the demise of the living room, there has not really been a focal point for new groups. The new club will be called The Room at the Top, and is situated at the Enterprise Public House, next door to Chalk Farm Tube Station, North London. <clears throat> it's a large room upstairs, and already we have booked some of the top independent bands to play. The club opened on Saturday, 2nd of March, when Yeah Yeah No played and was supported by fellow Leicester band The Bomb Party. The week after saw the television personalities appear, followed in the weeks after that by Mood 6, The X-Men, Obvious, Wigs and Terry and Jerry. From the start, the club was popular, and the crowds often upstairs often spilled back down to the bar below. The Enterprise was an old pub, and the rafters above the ground floor bar regularly shook with the collective weight of the crowd. The pub's landlady on more than one occasion halting a band's performance to tell the audience to stop jumping around. 
The Television Personalities newsletter also announced the forthcoming single by the band The Good and Faithful Servant, a title lifted from the works of Joe Orton. The B-side was to be a track called The Dreams of a Factory Girl. In fact, A Good and Faithful Servant finally appeared on 1989's Privilege album, and the B-side was never formally released. The single was important since the plan was that it would launch a new label that Dan Tracy was setting up. Dreamworld will carry on from where Wham! left off, the fan club newsletter revealed, bringing you tomorrow's sounds today. Trouble is, we are usually too far ahead. Do people remember we released the first Tracy Thorne record, or recent TV celebrities, Doctor and the Medics, not to mention the Pastels and 1000 Mexicans? Dreamworld very much carried on where the Wham! label had left off. 1,000 Violins, who had previously been the Page Boys and released You're My Kind of Girl on Wham! the year before, had a new release, Halcyon Days, and along with a four-track EP from American band The Impossible Years, became the first two new label releases. Forthcoming records were promised by Jane Bond and the Undercover Men, Real Traitors and Go Servers, Go Service, <coughs> whose It Makes Me Realise 12 Inch, in fact, became the third Dreamworld release. Go Service was Joe Bartlett and Danny Hagen, later of Blue Train and one of the label's best new finds. They had supported the television personalities on the European tour in autumn 1984. In the April issue of the catalogue, Dan Tracy further elaborated on his plans for the label, giving some taster information on what was to come. The impossible years were the violent femmes meets the monkeys. 1000 violins were the smiths on synths. And Jane Bond and the un undercover men were politics and spy intrigue with a spaghetti western soundtrack. The catalogue also corrected the television personalities release, which it said would now be an LP of unreleased material called Is This Some Groovy Happening? One band not mentioned in the fan club newsletter or in the catalogue was the Wolverhampton band The Mighty Lemon Drops, whose demo tape dropped through Dan Trace's door around about the time the catalogue appeared in print. The band had tried their luck with a number of independent record labels, including Creation, who received the tape but passed on the band, and Subway, Subway Organisation, who did respond positively but took things no further. Dan Tracy received the tape enthusiastically, writing to the band on the 22nd of May, saying, Heard tape, absolutely brilliant, and inviting them to come to London and play a show supporting the television personalities at the room at the top on the 22nd of June. In fact, the Mighty Lemon Drops did perform with the television personalities, but not until the following month, supporting Dan Tracy's band and 1,000 violins at the Deptford Crypt on the 12th of July, before playing the room at the top on the following night, the day of the Wembley Live Edge show, where they supported the membranes. <coughs> Events moved at a swift pace for a band that had only formed at the start of the year and not even played a gig until the 15th of March when they opened for the man upstairs at Peacock's in Birmingham. That gig itself had taken place just a month after the band had first rehearsed together and recorded their first five songs a week after the first gig. Those were the songs duplicated onto cassette the band had sent off to John Tracy. We recorded two sessions, recorded guitarist Dave Newton in 2014. Five songs were recorded at an inexpensive eight-track studio on a farm near Worcester, and there was another session at a studio in Rugeley near Cannock. We combined them and made an eight-song mini-album that we sold at gigs called Some of My Best Friends Songs. This was a mission statement. We initially made 50, which took a little while to sell, although after our first enemy mini-feature, we sold about another 100 all over the world, which we couldn't believe. 
Ban was dedicated and self-sufficient and had enough pedigree between them to make it work. Bassist Tony Lynham and drummer Keith Rowley had previously been in a power pop mod band called The Pow and had met Dave Newton at the time when Newton was writing a fanzine called SOS and had gone along to write about the band. Tony Lynham modelled his bass playing on the melodic style of Bruce Foxton and although The Pow never progressed far, the experience of the band was useful in helping Lynham hone his songwriting abilities. Newton and Lynham wrote all the songs in the Mighty Lemon Drops. After editing SOS, David Newton had been in a number of bands. A band called Active Restraints had featured both Tony Lynham and vocalist Paul Marsh. The band gigged through 1982 and recorded a single that got played on the John Peel show. An EP was recorded at Cargo, but the group disbanded before it was released. Dave Newton went off to join the Wildflowers, releasing an album and a couple of singles and touring in support of bands like The Simple Minds, The Chameleons and The Bluebells. The gang got back together at the start of 1985 and decided to form a band, quote, but to do it right this time. The circuit they played on consisted of the pubs and clubs of Birmingham, which was apparently not quite the hippest of scenes at the time. Dave Newton would recall it was pretty dull locally. There was a kind of psychedelic scene in Birmingham, Bands like the Great Outdoors and Surf Drums and clubs like The Loft and Sensitaria, but it was safe and not edgy or exciting. Many of the local bands, remembers Newton, didn't look or sound as if they ought to be in the same band. Your typical Wolverhampton band, Tony Lynham later told NME, would have a Mohican on guitar, a heavy rock bass player, a skinhead drummer and a new romantic singer or at least a mix of some of those ingredients, it was a scene the Mighty Lemon Drops were keen to avoid. The band was not only musically focused, but paid attention to other detail as well. The overall image was important. We thought of the Beatles in Hamburg look, combined with early Velvet Underground playing Wah Heat's Seven Minutes to Midnight, louder and faster with a strong emphasis on the melody, was Dave Newton's description of how the band's image and music conjoined. That was it, basically, with their own black country charity spin. Tony Lynham has noted how he liked bands that looked like they belonged together, bands like The Clash and The Ramones. The Smiths and the Jesus and Mary Chain might be added to that short list. The Beatles' Hamburg look was honed in 1960 after George Harrison walked into the Meyer Schudart Sport and Leder store in Hamburg and per- purchased a le- leather jacket. It had elasticated cuffs and waist, angled pockets and zip and was zip, zip fastening. It was the only jacket he wore professionally when the Beatles played Hamburg, which they did on 281 occasions, including a staggering run of 91 consecutive nights, usually playing 12-hour sets in 1961. The Mighty Lemon Drops took this lead but rejected the leather trousers in favour of drill trousers. Nonetheless, when they walked onto the stage at the room at the top, they could have been walking straight out of an early Astrid Kircher photograph. It wasn't quite the air of menace or threat that the look carried during the proto-rock period or in the case of the Beatles when it somehow seemed to enshrine the seaport grubbiness of Hamburg with its raw energy and tension, its streets awash with amphetamines and readily available sex and its port home to prostitutes, sailors and gangsters. But the mighty lemon drops still managed to cut an impressive figure and while their experience didn't quite run to 91 consecutive 12-hour sets, they were very tight musically. In other words, the impact they made was quite dramatic. The NME review, penned by the legend of the show at the room on the top, although slightly challenging text-wise, attempted to get across the energy of the band, not least in its use of 13 exclamation marks in the short three-paragraph review. The Mighty Lemon Drops have squeezed every last drop of perspiration from their 30-minute set, the perfect antidote to the curse of London apathetic audiences. 
The legend wondered whether he could hear any traces of the sound of the early echo and the bunnymen in their set, and then decided it didn't matter. After all, any serious indie guitar band in the middle of 1985 that possessed a half-good-looking frontman with a powerful voice was compared to Echo and the Bunnymen, as was the case, for instance, with Mighty Lemon Drops contemporaries on the scene, the Bodines. The Mighty Lemon Drops never moved to London, preferring to keep a base in the Midlands and to sleep on Duntrace's floor in Clapham when the need arose. They were insulated from the London scene, and the London scene was insulated from from them at the start. This was another reason why they made such a dramatic impact when they played those first few London shows. In fact, in summer 1985, most of the very best bands playing in London on the London circuit weren't from or based in London. The two other new bands that were most often on the tips of tongues at the time, the Shop Assistants and the Wedding Present, were also from outside the capital, the former Edinburgh-based, the latter from Leeds. The response to the Mighty Lemon Drop's initial performances and to the review of the legend wrote in the NME prompted Dan Tracy to speed up plans for releasing a Mighty Lemon Drop single. Tracy sent them into tiny North London studio in August to record tracks for a proposed EP that he planned to rush release. One of the most popular affordable studios was Alaska in Waterloo, but Dunn thought it was too expensive, Dave Newton later recalled. He sent us to Electro-Rhythm in Hornsey, half the price of Alaska. It, it was in the living room of an affable Scottish guy, filled with 60s, 70s recording gear and the mixing console. We ran through like an angel in one take and he played it back. It sounded huge, incredible. We couldn't believe it was us. Over the years that follows, we would spend months in some of the best recording studios in the world with great producers and engineers, but like an angel will hold its own to any of these.
Big Sam was created in part by the drum kit that Keith Rowley had borrowed for the occasion. The ride cymbal had a huge crack in it, as did the crash cymbal. The snare was gaffer taped to the bottom skin of the snare drum, and the bass pedal had been repaired at a steelworks in Tipton a couple of days before and squeaked a lot. But all the faults just seemed to en- enhance the overall sound, as Keith Rowley later recalled. The cymbals sound huge because the delay caused by the cracks go on forever. You didn't so much just play that kit as fight with it and the whole thing had to be strapped down with the odds of tape or it would just walk away. Dan Tracy had enough money to pay for five hours recording, but the band managed to squeeze in five tracks at a total cost of £96. As well as Like an Angel, the band recorded Something Happens, Sympathise With Us, Now She's Gone and All The Way. According to Tony Lynham, the warm sound of the vintage recording gear, the nervous energy of the performances and the maverick genius of the engineer combined to create the only recordings that ever came, to, ever came close to capturing the real sound of the band. The Mighty Lemon Drops continued gigging through the autumn, playing with the June Brides the same month that they recorded the single and also appearing at the ambulance station for a Dream World's, Dream World Records night, along with the television personalities and 1,000 violins, and also a Paul Groovy and the Pop Art Experience, who Tracy had invited to play. The NME interview took place in October when David Swift interviewed them. The band was holding off playing live until the single was released. They still, however, managed to squeeze in gigs with Bogshed, That Petrol Emotion, The Bodines, The June Brides for a second time at the Hammersmith Riverside Week of Wonders and The Servants before November was out. Just prior to the single being released in December, the Mighty Lemon Drops did a session for Andy Kershaw. They were simultaneously offered a session on the Janice Long Show Therefore, given the luxury of having to decide which Radio 1 show they would appear on first, they tossed a coin and it fell in favour of Andy Kershaw, although they recorded a session for Janice Long barely a month later at the start of 1986. The two sessions highlighted songs that would later find their way onto their debut album, Happy Head, as well as a track that appeared on the B-side of the 7-inch version of Like an Angel, Now She's Gone, and a cover on the Janice Long session of a Teardrop Explodes song, When I Dream. Like an Angel was released in December, originally available in a three-track 12-inch format only, the other two tracks being Something Happens and Sympathise With Us. With its lush textures, spacey sound, layered guitar landscapes and haunting vocal, for many Like an Angel arrived fully and perfectly formed. The enemy called it quite simply brilliant. Very few, indie single, very few indie singles, even by the end of 1985, were able to conjure up such a classic pop feel or deliver work that was so unashamedly garage in content yet mainstream in potential appeal. Whether by chance or design, the band never really matched what was achieved in the Hornsey front room of producer Wilson Sharp, as Tony Lanham noted in the sleeve notes to uptight the early recordings 1985-86 to 86, when he referred to the recordings as lightning in a bottle. Indeed, such was the headiness of the brew that Dreamworld quickly realised that, that they had a potential hit on their hands. The 12-inch version entered the independent chart at the start of January and remained there for an extraordinary 40 weeks, peaking at number four. However, the label realised they were unlikely to get serious daytime radio airplay for a 12-inch single, 
and in early spring announced that it would be releasing a 7-inch version of the single on the 21st of April. The release coincided with the band suddenly becoming a magnet for major label A&R men. Even without major label support, the Mighty Lemon Drops was claimed a Dreamworld press release in March, selling out venues with a capacity of 800. It looks like this could be one of the few successful ind- independent records in the proper charts, wrote Dan Tracy and Emily Brown in the same press release. But hopefully for Dreamworld and many others that standing in the independent sector, both groups and labels alike, this could be the starting point for su- success and acceptance. At the start of 1986, the enemy had invited the Mighty Lemon Drops to, con- to contribute like an angel to C86, but the band declined, preferring instead to go into a studio and record some new material for the compilation. In the end, Happy Head ended up on the cassette and all three tracks were recorded in according to Dave Newton. A cheap Wolverham studio found their way onto the band's debut album, also called Happy Head. We made a mistake, Dave Newton later commented. Of course we ought to have given the enemy like an angel, especially after hearing what some of the other bands contributed, such as Primal Scream and the Bodines. In their first extensive interview, also in the enemy, Adrian Thrills distilled the essence of the band's sound. 
noting the new Mazzy-beat influence of the Liverpool bands of 1979 and 1980, a period that had produced more classic singles than the time of punk, and suggesting that such influence was what enabled the band to create classic pop and make it sound easy. In the interview, David, Dave Newton put to rest the criticism that the band sounded just a little bit too much like Echo and the Bunnymen, pointing out that a closer influence was the power of War Heat and the tunes of the Teardrop Explodes. After Like an Angel, there was talk of the band recording a mini-album for Dreamworld, but the lure of a more fully funded offer proved too great. And in any event, as Dave Newton has told Adrian Thrills, we never said we don't want to sign with a major label. We want to be heard by as many people as possible. In the end, the Mighty Lemon Drops signed a deal in the UK with Jeff Travis and Blue Guitar, a subsidiary of Chrysalis, and a deal in the United States with Seymour Stein at Sire. The album that followed Happy Head was 1988's World Without End and it made it all the way into the mainstream top 40 or the proper, proper charts. Three of the next four singles after Like an Angel also charted, reaching the low reaches of the top 100. Derek Jarman produced a video for Out of Hand in 1987. He also worked with the Smiths. Almost everything that was needed to be in place was put in place for the band to succeed commercially, but the proper breakthrough never fully happened. The lightning in a bottle that Tony Lynham later spoke about was like a genie. Once released, it was never going back in again, and the mighty Lemon Drops finally called it a day in 1992. So um, I'm, I'm really pleased that um, Phil's here, Dave's here. Um, I, I did an event in Walthamstow about a month ago, and someone said to me, but there's only one person on on there that was actually on C86. And now you've got two people on here. So this is a sort of 100% improvement. But um, um, I want, want to start with Phil. Um, I, I, don't, I don't want to steal his best lines, but um, um, during 1985, when they sent the demo tapes out, um, perhaps you could tell us what happened when I actually went to Emily and your, your dad answered the phone. Oh, yes. Um, so we'll call the servants. Emily rang, my, I was living at home in Maud, and, and my, Emily rang up to speak to my dad and said, uh, he didn't know I was in a group called The Servants, and said, can I speak to one of the servants? And, and my dad said, sorry, we haven't got any servants here. <laughs> and then when, when I found that, of course, when I said we'll call The Servants, he said, what a stupid name that is. <laughs> So that's why they were never signed to Dreamworld. Um, but um, Dave, you were signed to Dreamworld, and, and and what was that like? Was it what was the experience like of dealing with Dan and um, just the whole thing of coming through that that whole indie process? I don't know. It was funny, really, because like when the band first got together, we like you mentioned earlier, we we just sent three cassettes out. We sent one to creation one to sub well martin whitehead was that the guy's Subway name? Or. and dan's the one that got back and um he you know he put out like an angel and we it was because we were from wolverhampton there were no real bands that were doing anything similar to what we were doing around there and slade slade <laughs> one of the greatest bands ever but it was a bit different to what we were doing. <laughs> but, uh, no. And how did you find Dan Tracy? Because obviously... Because I was a TV I was a fan of television personalities and, and I bought everything from their, even their first single. 
and I knew that it really it was Wham Records at the time. It was before it was called Dreamworld. But the most important thing about Dan Tracy was, of course, that his neighbour was <laughs> Ali Bongo. <laughs> lived upstairs. He used to get his mail. You to get, told me that. I didn't He used to that. get Ali Bongo's mail. <laughs> in, lived in that place in Clapham South. Anyway, sorry. Pointers yeah. Road in Clapham. <laughs> it was great, though, because we, we, I mean, literally the first time we ever went to London, Dan's like, you can, well, you can't stay at us, but you can, we, we, Tony, our bass player, who I think might even be here, I'm not sure, uh, he had a v Volkswagen or caravanette or campervan, as he called it now, and we slept outside Dan's uh, flat on Pointers Road, and it was the, the day of live out. I remember him like knocking on the door with cups of tea at like eleven in the morning, and he, I remember him saying, "Oh, Ad- Adamant's just come on." <laughs> <laughs> I think it was about eleven. I think he was on the first. No, status quo, open live. I think. I remember around that time he had a answer machine message where he'd done some whole little skit about Trace, like Thunderbirds, Tracy Island, like Dan Tracy Island. <laughs> God. Well, the fervent, first servant shows, of course, were supporting the TVPs at the Pinder of Wakefield, which yeah. is the Monkey Club put on by Andy Winters here. Um, and uh, we played to the empty room, and he came in, and that's why they offered us a deal after that. And that was even that was just our first show. You know, it's amazing. And, 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 and Phil, um, obviously, because you are, <coughs> you know, sort of... Uh, uh, to use this word, the zelig of you know, kind of music <laughs> and sort of you know, sort of, Phil's played basically with everyone, but um, um, but how do you feel about the fact that the servants were sh- so short lived? Uh, disappointing. I mean, we played 28 shows in a literally a year, it, was, it would be nice to have maybe recorded an album or something. It was, it was a shame. Any reason why that didn't happen? <coughs> was it down to any personality or? Well, like most groups, of course, yes. Squid in a stomach exploding, fans were lying on my belly, pretending that I was a whale. Washed up on the shore in a sea blue cove, in a silken streamlined pink and mauve, I drank from the grail. Don't turn your eyes away from the window, it's a sea blue disguise. On the pillow. Of 
Um, Dave, obviously you, um, you're, you're kind of, as, as, as I said, as I say in the book, you know, the, the, the Mighty Lemon Drops go back a little bit further than some of those bands that were coming through 1985. So you had we're quite, still, quite we're, we're pretty young now. I mean, when the Lemondoffs formed, I was 20. I remember my 20, 21st birthday was the 31st of August, 85, and we supported the June Brides at the Pindra Wakefield. And I remember, like, after the gig, I don't even remember, I think maybe I had got one beer at the gig. And I drove back in my 1974 Morris Marina to Wolverhampton, like that same night. I mean, that that's how I didn't even, well, celebrated my 21st birthday, but we played at the Pinder of Whitefield with the June Boys. Whereas I was old. <laughs> I was, I can remember that year we did a show supporting the Pale Fountains in Liverpool, and it was my birthday, and David Westlake went on stage and went, it's Phil's birthday, and he's... 26. <laughs> and the whole room went silent. <laughs> Phil, how did you how did you feel about the, the 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 way that everything got hoovered up into that C86 kind of thing? Cuz cuz you were both on the tape um and 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 you know could you uh, do you remember What's the usual sort of thing like when you're reading extracts? I think there's very probably very few bands who I mean, apart from obviously Primal Scream, who didn't feel like, oh, we, we blew it, really. We gave the wrong track. But, you know, some of us, like the Servants, we'd only recorded three songs. So we weren't going to give away the A side of the single. What was the third one? Oh, it was a song called Loggerheads. Did that ever come out? Eventually, yeah, it did. But um, so we gave the B side. And Dave, obviously. I mean, one doesn't want to keep focusing on like an angel, but but you know, kind of like the, the, because you were asked to contribute that track. It wasn't even like we 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 wanted you to provide a track. We asked you to contribute that track, and you you said you wouldn't do it. Well, I don't know. It was just like because I remember um, like because the when Enemy had done the cassettes before, and like C eighty one for instance, which was like a, I don't know if anybody remembers that, but. It was like a lot of like B-sides and alternative mixes and it wasn't like the band's singles. So when C86, we were offered that, we thought, well, we can't just put like an angel on it. That will be obvious. So we should just do something new. And then, like you said earlier, when you read it, that then, you know, the Bodines did, uh, Ian Brody produced uh, Therese, which is a great record, but it like cost like a, you know, 20 times more than what the demo that we contributed to and also it's, it's, it sold so many copies how many copies did it sell so you just thought we're going to make so much money from this <laughs> yeah why do we <laughs> want like an angel why do we want to yes. give it away to this cassette for how much was it what was <laughs> the fee actually i think i do know because i moved into jeff barrett's our manager after he moved out and i got a letter to him and the guy i live with who was playing guitar and said can't open it open it and it was a sort of royalty check. I was like, how much? I think it was 300 quid or something. You, you, I, th I think everyone got 300 pounds to record, um, to, to, to record a track. Um, uh, were you, are, you, are you surprised that the, sort of the whole legacy of the whole C86? Of course, yeah, definitely, yeah. Same here. Well, yeah. How do, um, could you, any attempt at explaining it? Why? I don't know. I mean, at the time, it was kind of, I mean, 
because it's it's a, quite a diverse album. It's not like everything. It's kind of jangly indie pop. It's like you've got the. I mean, obviously you had the the event last month, which had bands which were more kind of not like uh, I did you know pigeonhole of genreize anything, but it is. It's not just like jangly indie pop. It's like kind of a lot of it's more kind of aggressive. What's the word? Uh, good haircuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not all in, about the, not in the mighty lemon drop sense, though. <laughs> well, apart from with actually with membranes on it. But why, 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 why has it survived? Because it's got charm, obviously. Yeah, it's yeah, it's charming and it's got a rough edge to it. Yeah, melodic in places. I think it was just what was happening at the time. It was like just before that. It was like because you'd had you obviously had punk, then you had the post-punk thing. And then a lot of the bands who were punks became successful, like Orange Juice, and uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the obviously Bunnymen and all those bands. And I think there wasn't really that much going on in '83, '84, '85 that was different. No, it was. I mean, I didn't even go to but from '81 to '82, up until about '85. I stopped going to the, the only group that kept going. The thread was like for me felt. Right. As a guitar band, you know, and it's because they seemed mysterious. It was only because Cherry Red didn't want to pay any money for advertising or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, they seemed like a mysterious band, great songs. So about, and until Creation came along and the Smiths and things like that and the Mary Chain, you know. Can I just, since Phil mentioned Felt, um, just, just say, because Felt, I think, were one of the sort of great classic bands of the period, um, uh, 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 and I think with a with a with a reputation that still holds up. I did invite Lawrence well, along actually. You've, you've I sent him a postcard from Porto. Right. He might be here. And of, and of course, Phil 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 played him felt, but um, I know because I was thinking about on the way here actually. I just think how crazy. So I the last servants gig was supporting felt at Bay sixty three when Lawrence took acid. And told the audience to stop staring at him and get the money and go home. <laughs> and yet, about two months later, I still joined the band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen to you now, maybe you're 
Anybody like to ask a question? Not that I can see anyone. But... Alternatively, I could. I have got uh, my 1986 diary. Oh, this is a gem, actually. We 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 need to get Phil reading a few of these. I can uh, read you some. There's none more indie extracts from my diary. Okay, let's see. March the 27th, Maundy Thursday. Meet meet Dan Tracy from the TVPs on the bus. He was going to pay his telephone bill. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, I also forgot. Down to Alan. No, actually, John Peel session made of ale. Producer Dale Griffin. Bit miserable, actually. Did you did you do a session with him? I did him a couple of times. I remember he had, <laughs> nice he, had a, he was an he was in a swivel chair, <laughs> sat in bomber jacket, and I was so excited. But he, he always wore white shoes. But the worst, worst thing about our session was this woman walked in in like a sort of white lab coat. I had a listen and went, oh, they did this kind of music so much better in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to my diary. Uh, anything else? For the anything talk? else? Uh, oh, yeah, look here. My Lemon Drops at the LSE, supported by the servants, the primitives, and Pop Will Eat Itself. Oh, when was that? Uh, at the LSE. No, when was that? When was that? When was that? Oh, sorry, I didn't give the date. Yeah, sorry. Saturday, 28th of June. June, 86. Yeah. Okay. Uh, weather profits, servants porting at Clarendon. Uh, Pot will eat itself, I think it was, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, and Happy Mondays. Wow. Bottom of the bill. I remember we turned up, I turned up with Jeff Barrett, and we they were just all sitting on the floor, and we were like, Hell. <laughs> and just before I was about to go on stage, Bez came up to me, and I mean, this is like 86, and he was just off his face then, and he came up to me and went, Oi, Paul McCartney, got any Mandy's? <laughs> Had you? <laughs> no, I hadn't, no. <laughs> oh, that's where you <laughs> fell down. <laughs> it could have been all so different. <laughs> and Dave, just finally, what, how, how, how did you feel that? you know, sort of your experience of post the sort of, um, you know, signing to major and, and, and doing all of that and then, you know, Seymour Stein in America and, and, and how, how was that? Well, it was great because, again, we, we, there was no, we didn't start the band because we, it was, I hate to use the word career, but it was just like, just we were all on the dole and we just wanted to form a band. And it was all just, it was great, really. It was brilliant, you know. And then we ended up doing that. And then we, be, you know, then, of course, there was a bit of a 
not backlash in the UK, but we weren't the the, the coolest band anymore. But uh, you know, I mean, it was it, it was great. I mean, I mean, I think other bands were impressed that you know. You see, not, I, not only I never knew that. Not, I not, not only might Lemon Drops get a decent rider, but they yeah. come to America. America. <laughs> well, we Dave Newell's got an American girlfriend. America. <laughs> well, of course, there were a number of Jim bands. Reed's got a French girlfriend. He's got a French girlfriend. <laughs> it was all very exotic. It was very exotic. You know, because I'm just from Malden, you know, so. I'm from Malden. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Right. That's true, <laughs> actually, yeah. Morden, Morden's exotic if you're from Wolverhampton. <laughs> I prefer Mosley. Right, okay, finally, can I ask, is anyone going to ask a question? Yay. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, one of, one of the things that slightly overlooked is the importance of the enemy in creating this tape in the first place. And in the kind of modern world, that sense of curation has gone to a certain extent. There's no central voice for the music industry. How, how do you think you would have fared in, in, the, ter- in the day-to-day where potentially we're in a similar sort of political uncertainty, there's the same sort of things to be angry and, and kind of forming bands to, to, to kind of fight against? How, how do you think it would have fared in the modern world of Spotify, a million genres and, and the less of kind of curated force to follow? Who wants to take that? Well, I guess I mean, it's different back... I mean, one thing now... I mean, it, we did have a, a support system that, right. you know, you could sign on. Quite a lot of people lived in squats. Yep. You know, you could... Or get by doing a bit of job work on the side or whatever. You know, you could get you could get by doing it. Whereas now, it's impossibility, isn't it? You've got a prison no. problem. Hang on a minute, Phil. Rents in London are only about a £1,000 a week. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing too is it's very instant now it's like you know you had obviously three major well, sounds enemy melody maker but it would take like a while before some like now you can like an artist or a band can put a song out and it's there the following day and it's really instant whereas in back then it take a little longer to like build to that level and also know? now it's a bit more you know, I've been to sort of, of course, of that age, going to sort of friends, sons or daughters' bands, and it's a horrible, dispa- you know, where you go and see a band and one band plays with all their mates and then they leave and all their mates leave with them and then, and they, you know, wherein, whereas then it was a kind of, you know, we, we all had this, we were all in it together and especially because guitar bands hadn't, I know now it seems ridiculous, but but it just seemed like something new and exciting again. And, you know, we'd just we'd stay the whole evening, you'd meet people, you know, I met Dave through the room at the top, you know, make made friends from then. Whereas going to now, it's, it so seems dispassionate, really. Yeah. I'm but sure I, it is, I mean, I'm sure, you know, who knows? I, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question because um, I remember at the time, you know, that, that if you had any kind of influence as a journalist, everybody obviously just, jumped on you and wanted you to, to, to write something. And, 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 and you know, it, it was possible to, um, you know, uh, when the Jesus and Mary chain started, which, you know, I was obviously 
partly involved in in writing about. I was it. in. You know, you you saw the you know the, the impact that 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 the that the right kind of words in the right kind of place um, made. I mean, I, I, I um, but 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 so so now it seems to me, and I was talking to Gideon Co about this last night. There seems to be um, there's a sort of equality of, of of the field in terms of making your music and of course it's so much cheaper you know i mean it's got to be you know kind of like um well, it's probably not as cheap as that like uh like an angel session which was the <laughs> 96 quid <laughs> <laughs> um, so how much does the computer cost you you know a laptop but yeah, um, how much does the tape <laughs> but um you know it, it it's it's sort of um but it is this just huge morass, so I'm, I'm not sure how, how it would work. The only way C86 would work today is if it was, you know, sponsored by Michelob and um, <laughs> yeah. all of the horrible things that you... you, you or just wait till we get to 86 <laughs> and we can do it again. Um, sponsored or, by Saga, or, or, or it's still that, around. It, it, it's worth remembering, of course, that C86 was a marketing venture by a company. Enemy really took on its first marketing person in 1986, and, you know, there was... There was, there was nothing polite about the way they they did see eighty six, either in the sense that it, it wasn't quite as sort of um, um, wonderfully egalitarian as it as it, as it seems. They wanted to sell tapes, and of course they had also got slated the next tape for twelve weeks later because these tapes didn't last more than twelve weeks. But um, this one seems to have lasted about thirty four years and twelve weeks.
Rough Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.